Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Joe. We're the NC Wine Guys. Welcome to Cork Talk. In this episode of Cork Talk, we sit down with Pat and Clyde Caldwell of Carolina Heritage Vineyard and Winery in Elkin, North Carolina. Pat and Clyde both came to North Carolina for work and wanted to find a way to make a difference. Clyde had a desire to grow grapes and Pat was on board as long as they could stick to organic and sustainable practices. Over the years, they've learned so much about organic farming. Pat has learned to think like nature to overcome many of the common problems in the vineyard. Being a part of the community has also left a large impact on the couple, and they embrace doing their part to help it grow. The wine mouths are also back in this episode. They talked to us about the many American viticulture areas across the state. So sit back, pour a glass, and listen. All right, we're here today with Pat and Clyde Caldwell of Carolina Heritage Vineyard and Winery in Elkin, North Carolina. Pat and Clyde, welcome to Cork Talk. Well, thank you. We uh, appreciate being here. Thank you also. Tell us a little bit about yourselves and how you ended up in Elkin, North Carolina. Um, just lucky. <laughs> um, well, we were both eligible to retire. Um, I was in software development. Clyde was in the education business. And um, we had too much energy to retire retire. Um, so we had a conversation about, you know, I always refer to it as a what should we do when we grow up conversation, but it's basically what it is like. And Clyde had grown up in the Finger Lakes of New York State, a lot of vineyards and wineries. Um, He said, you know, I've always wanted to have a vineyard and winery. And I looked at him like, what are you talking about? And and I wanted to give back. I, I felt like I'd been blessed in life. I really wanted to give back. Um, so I said, uh, well, if we go organic, I'm game. Um, because I figure, well, I can't control the planet, but maybe there's a small parcel of land that will have no chemicals on it, and that'll count for something. Um, and that was in 2003. Um, we spent a year um, looking at land, uh, studying, talking to people. Everybody told us you can't grow grapes organically in North Carolina. Now. With all due respect, there were grapes here when the Europeans landed. So obviously they can be grown organically here. Um, And, but the more we studied up on it, the more we realized, we were looking in Chatham County a lot because there are organic farms there and neither one of us grew up farming. So we thought that would be helpful, have organic farms around us. But the more we studied up on it, the more we realized if we could be at a higher altitude, it would be better. Um, Chatham County is about 350 feet above sea level, um, so that brought us up here. And this is 1,100 feet. We wanted to be above 1,000 feet. So we started looking up here, and Clyde came and looked at this property. It was, it was very much overrun with briars, and he, but he thought it looked promising. Um, and uh, he said, I think you should look at it. So that Saturday we drove up and we walked in. The only building was what we refer to as the old farmhouse. Uh, we walked in the front door and he leaned over and he said, well, what do you think? And I said something like, it's fine. <laughs> you know, after you've looked at farmland for a year, it really kind of all looks alike. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I give him credit. Um, he was right. It's a knoll. It has grapes need to be on a slant because right. they don't do well in standing water. So we were able to plant on three sides. I mean, they didn't. They wouldn't take up Highway 268 for us, so we couldn't <laughs> plant on the four side. But um, so we bought it and um, we started. We were still working full time. So Friday night, we get in the car, drive up here, stay in the old farmhouse, and work all day Saturday, all day Sunday. Uh, we really didn't know what we were doing, but it was an adventure. And so it was fun. And Sunday night, we get in the car, we drive back, and uh, we planted uh, in 15 years ago this month, in fact, um, the, the, our first grapevines. You know, when you plant a grapevine, it very much looks like a stick with roots. Sure. It's not got much personality. and. It was, you know, it was still kind of a venture. And uh, then we came up in, I think it was late March or April, and all of those sticks had leaves coming out. I think I took a picture of every vine. Uh, and at that point, for me, there was no turning back. 
I was hooked. A month later, I retired. Two weeks after that, he retired. We moved up here and never looked back. Um, you know, there's something about growing grapes and making wine and serving the wine to people and having them say, I like your wine. You just had done the entire cycle. And in our modern world, there's not very many jobs where you get to do the whole cycle. And that is so rewarding. Um, that's been the pleasure of it. Um, you know, challenges um, were organic. And that was the choice we made. Um, we were first certified in 2008. It took, takes three years because we, we could have gone back because nobody had farmed the property for several years. We could have gone back and gotten people to sign papers. But it was going to be three years before we could make wine anyway, right. so it didn't matter. Um, so we used no chemicals in the vineyard. Um, we have about 12 acres of grapes. Um, they're all native and hybrids. Um, we've experimented with a bunch of different varieties. We find a grape, a new hybrid as an example. We try to find wine made from it because that's why we're growing grapes is mm -hmm. to make wine. If we think it makes good wine, we'll get maybe a dozen plants. And right in front of our house, there's a test row. And you'll notice there's maybe one or two vines there. So we'll plant them in the test row. And they'll be treated just like they'll be treated in the vineyard. They don't get anything, basically. And we'll see how they do. And if they do well, then we'll carve out a section and put in that grape. If not, well, chalk that one off and we keep trying. So, you know, we have Chamberson, Cynthiana, or Norton, as they refer to it in, in Virginia, um, some, some Tremonette. We have uh, Frontenac, which is actually a Minnesota grape, which mm. we planted because I was curious. If a grape has been created for cold hardiness, would that also mean that it would be very good in a lot of heat, like we get? So it was curiosity. So we planted that three years ago. After two years, it was had full cordons and was full of grapes. Wow. I mean, it was it clearly liked North Carolina. There's no question. Uh, the the challenge with it is that it ripens in early August. Oh wow! Because it's used to a shorter sure. growing season, mm -hmm. right? So you have to kind of get used to those things. Uh, we have Cayuga White. We have Stuben. Um, we have four varieties of Muscadine. Uh, Carlos, Noble, Magnolia, and Doreen. Um, we have Isabella. Uh, and I think right now, that's, I think I named them all. Um, and we basically choose them because they can grow in our climate. The biggest challenge here is the moisture, the humidity. Sure. European wine grapes, unfortunately, just don't do well against a lot of mildew pressure. They just succumb to the mildew, and unless you use a lot of chemicals. And, and we just chose not to do that. Um, so, you know, that that's pretty much driven our decisions. Like I said, we pay attention to new hybrids. You know, Cornell University, UC Davis, Minnesota, um, they're all trying new hybrids all the time, and, and we'll try them. But like I said, I want them to make good wine, too. So, um, And of course, muscadines being native, you know, they're oblivious to the mildew pressure. It's like, you know, what humidity are you talking about? There's no humidity here. Um, so what are some of the challenges of growing the grapes organically here? I know you're choosing the hybrids and the natives because they do really well with minimal intervention, but uh, you still have to take care of the vineyard. Yes, you still have to yes. do something. So what are the, the challenges there? Um, yeah, I mean, the, you know, the vineyard, uh, having a vineyard, you know, is farming. Um, and so it has all of the challenges of farming. It's, it's up to nature. Uh, you know, you'll have some years where it's a drought. You'll have some years where it never stops raining. Um, you know, 2008, my favorite example, where it kept raining all through harvest, which was horrible. Um, so we, yeah, we have all of those challenges. You know, we do have uh, pressures sometimes with insects and with, with 
the humidity. Not all hybrids can be done with absolutely nothing. Um, Inside Japanese beetles for a while, oh my gosh, we had so many Japanese beetles, and we we used a kale and clay substance called surround, which, when you spray it on the vine, it kind of looks like a flocked Christmas tree. It's oh. all white, but it doesn't stop photosynthesis, and the insects don't like it, so it works. Well, the Japanese beetles are particularly a problem when the vines are real little because they eat all the leaves, and then the vine would die. So we were using surround, and after a couple of years, it was like, you know, there's got to be another way, or there wouldn't be a leaf left on this planet, you know, with regard to Japanese pop. So the thing that happens when you're organic is you learn to think like nature. Interesting. So you learn to ask the question, how does nature take care of Japanese beetles? And then you start noticing things like... There are certain birds that have an appetite for Japanese beetles, like guinea fowl. Mm. So you get six little baby keats, and you raise them, and you have guineas, and they love Japanese beetles. Um, so you know that's kind of the bottom line of being organic: is you, as you do, you learn to think like nature, and you know you have all of the same problems. Um, as a non-organic farm, but you, instead of jumping for a chemical, you look for a natural alternative. And, you know, the other thing with mildew, they, there are um, options that are very good with mildew that are natural. Hydrogen peroxide is a great example. Mm. Um, there's the, what they refer to as a Bordeaux mixture, uh, which is uh, copper sulfur. And the problem with that one is that some of these grapes are not sulfur tolerant. So that kind of wipes out using sulfur for a lot of salvation. But things like hydrogen peroxide, you know. Um, so there are things you can use that are considered organic because they're natural element um, that actually help. Um, you learn to, to cycle your pruning times like we haven't started pruning yet it's the middle of february we don't prune until the end of february early march the reason we don't prune until then is that we don't want that vine to start budding out as you know we get snow in march right. a third of the time um, and if it starts budding out because you've just said there's two buds here and guess what it must be spring because you're going to have a problem mm -hmm. so yeah we are sometimes <laughs> sometimes pruning into the summer but it's okay um, so you learn to kind of leverage nature when you can I like that thought too because like when you mentioned the guinea fowl that, that's a great kind of draw because you think like nature you get the guinea fowl the people who don't know just think, oh, they have these birds here. They're really cool. It's like another attraction. Yeah, yeah. It's more of like bringing in that ecotourism thing. They're like, oh, let's go to the place that has the little birds. And it's like, well, that's well, killing you know, a lot. A lot of things, I think until the 1950s, farmers knew how to do these things. But then, you know, after World War II, everything was better with chemistry. And I remember growing up, um, that was the thing, right? And and unfortunately, that moved us a couple generations away from people who knew natural ways of dealing with things. Mm -hmm. So now we have to all relearn the natural ways. A great little story about the guinea fowl. So when we had a dog uh, several years ago and we came here, we had the dog in the car and we were you know, finished up a tasting and kind of took her out for a little bit. And the guinea fowl were kind of out in the parking lot. <laughs> and the dog was like... What do I do? And the guinea fowl all scared. came to the dog, and she's like, Ugh. and then she turned around and like looked to sniff at him, and then the guinea fowl was like, blah, 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 and then oh. ran away. <laughs> like Amy, you were a tiny little dog. She was a thirty-five pound Dalmatian, but you know, you're, you're bigger than those birds. Don't be scared. They should be afraid of you. That is, that is, beautiful. So let's talk a little bit about. We've talked about the the varieties that you have planted in the vineyards. Your winemaking is also organic. Yes. So not only the vineyard, yes. but winemaking. So let's talk a little bit more about that. Okay. Um, so all of the elements of winemaking uh, 
have to be what's referred to as OMRI approved. OMRI is an independent organization that analyzes whatever you would like to have OMRI approved to ensure that there are no chemicals, no petrochemicals in it, that it is all natural, man-made, or nature-made elements. There are, so when we buy yeast, we buy yeast uh, from a, a laboratory in um, California that has an organic expert hmm. that we can call because there are organic vineyards are not uncommon in California. Well, they don't have the moisture we have for one thing. But um, as a result, they have an organic expert. So we can call and talk to them about their yeasts. In their catalog, the yeast will say Omri approved. So we only use OMRI-approved yeast, likewise for nutrients. So often you had to have to add nitrogen primarily, but nutrients we refer to them as to the must so that the yeast can survive and, and do what it needs to do. Uh, and likewise, that has to be OMRI-approved. We don't use any caustic cleaners in the winery. Um, we don't use wooden barrels only because wooden barrels can harbor bacteria. And if you, it's a, just a risk we choose not to take. Uh, there are some red wines that I like a little oak in the red wine. And so what we will do then is we will use oak chips okay. and compost them. So uh, we don't keep them, we, we reuse them that way. Um, so, yeah, winemaking, um, we don't use any chemicals. We don't use any flavorings or anything like that as a part of it. And when we're inspected for being organic, we, um, our winery is inspected as a producer and the vineyard is inspected as well. So we both operations have always been fully organic. Very nice. So picking back up on, on winemaking, the organic winemaking side of things, um, you've talked about how it's a little bit different, the approach that you use there. So are there any challenges or benefits that you see out of organic versus using the other chemicals that are not OMRI approved? The biggest reward for me is just knowing we're doing it. Um, I will tell you, and I, and I could never been able to fully explain it, that we often get feedback from customers that our wines taste cleaner. Hmm. I don't know what that word means. Because, you know, we drink our own, we've been drinking our own wines now for 12 years. So you kind of, it's like, I don't know what that means. But we do get that feedback from people. Um, so I know that we have purchased wine, non-organic wines, that had a kind of a mechanical taste to them or whatever and so I if that's what they mean and because we don't use chemical additives of any kind then I understand um, but for me it's just knowing that we're doing that that makes the difference so let's take a, a step back really quick so you mentioned that so neither of you are native to North Carolina. So you've come, Pat, you came from Minnesota. Wisconsin. Wisconsin, I'm sorry, you come from Wisconsin. And Clyde, you came from upstate New York, the Finger mm -hmm. Lakes area. Yeah. So how did you two, one, come together, and two, make it here to North Carolina? Um, was it for work, or was it for yeah. the, the vineyard, or what was, the, uh, what was the, the driver there? Well, I worked for IBM. Okay. Uh, I've been moved, you may have heard that re reference. Um, and of course, IBM has a very large facility in Research Triangle Park. Um, and I was in software development, and so that's how I got here. Um, Clyde? I became <laughs> in this uh, proposition uh, coming out of, of the U.S. Marine Corps. And as time went on, the opportunities were there that you could do a lot of things in the military if you play your cards the right way and do it the right way. And uh, <clears throat> shortly thereafter, our hair went from the military directly to college with no training. But it was made because of what was going on. So, and then. The, the last one of the whole thing was uh, 
same thing. I don't know whether they're playing games with me or what, but Colwell, you are now going to go to a Penn State University. And I said, what? <laughs> Far a cry from where you expected, but that all worked out the nice way, and I ended up, so in this segment of the whole thing, I ended up with a doctorate made specifically for the military. Tell them how you got to North Carolina. <laughs> it's something about a lady, I think, wasn't it? <laughs> no, you were here before I got here. So did you both meet here in North Carolina then? Yes, we did. Okay. Um, he, he had retired from Pennsylvania. He had been a superintendent up there and uh, had retired, was single, and had moved down here. I was widowed and realized I did not want to retire where I was living at the time, which was South Florida. So I moved my kids. I raised my kids in North Carolina. So okay. this was pretty much home at that point. Moved back, and that's when we met. And um, that's when we had the conversation about what should we do when we grow up. Very cool. <laughs> and, and you found this knoll and planted some grapes. <laughs> you heard the story. Where they came down. And <laughs> <laughs> You've heard the story. Yeah. Well, that's perfect. So thank you for, for indulging a little bit in the background sure. there. Sure. Um, we're going to take our quick little break to go into our education segment, and okay. then we're going to come back and we'll talk a little bit more about the wines and some other future okay. things there, okay. too. Time for wine class with the wine mouths. Welcome back, Jesse and Jessica. Thanks for having us. You're so welcome. What's our topic today? Today we're going to be discussing AVAs. So now, what does AVA stand for? AVA stands for American Viticultural Area. And why is that important? Well, AVAs are really important for establishing and celebrating the terroir of a region. Um, so, what makes it different and what makes it good for growing grapes in that specific area? Yeah, so basically somebody decides to rope off an area of land and say, this area is great for growing grapes and making wine. And so we're able to put it on bottles and tout that area as being a good wine region. Mm -hmm. And a lot of factors go into it. So soil, weather, climate, temperatures, all of that to justify why it's different than anything outside of that area. Very cool. So we know that we have some AVAs in the state. How many do we actually have? Let's see. <laughs> As we count yeah. our fingers. One, two, three, four, five, six, six. Six. That's we a lot. have six. Yeah. <laughs> and our newest one was just added in August of 2019. So the AVAs are presided over by the TTB. So it's like a government agency that determines whether or not that AVA can exist. And it's a lengthy process that you have to go through to determine if an AVA can come into existence. So any fun facts about North Carolina's AVAs? Well, we do have an AVA inside of an AVA. Yes. So okay. We have the Yadkin Valley AVA, which is a really large area. It goes all the way from Childress in Lexington to, I don't know how far it goes. Yeah. But Basically Jones Vondrell and all yeah. the way to the yeah. border. Within that is Swan Creek. So cue the inception sound effect right there. But yeah, so you can have an AVA inside of an AVA. And an AVA can go across states. Because one of ours, too, shares some with Tennessee. Two, actually. Two. So one, one with Tennessee is the Appalachian High Country, which is also with Virginia. Gotcha. Hmm. And then Upper Hiawassee, we share with Georgia. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. geography is not our strong suit. <laughs> <laughs> and once you get over to the western part, like, all the states are so close. So yeah. it's like, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. We can't determine how the soil is different. <laughs> <laughs> Um, another fun fact, too, is if a bottle of wine has an AVA on the label, that means that at least 85% of that wine has to be from within that AVA. So it's kind of a way of controlling quality and making sure that you're sticking to that regionality. Yes. So we seem to have touched on, I think, five of the six AVAs. So there's there's actually another yeah. one in there. So that one is... Which one do we know? So we've got... Hall River? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We've got Yakin Valley, Swan Creek, Haw River Valley. And Haw River Valley is around the Greensboro area. Mm-hmm. Good reference point. So the furthest east that We're we have. All city folk. Yeah. The upper Hiawassee and Appalachian High Country. And then our newest one that we talked about. Yeah. Crest of the Blue Ridge. Of Henderson County. So one of our questions was for you guys. Ooh, okay. 
Do you think North Carolina could justify or support any additional ABAs? Yes. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Polk County, so near Tryon, Tryon Foothills, okay. uh, where you find Over Mountain, Parker Bends, Mountain Brook, there's a few other vineyards there in that area. Um, I think that area, I believe they might actually be working on an ABA for that area, <laughs> but I would expect that that would be the next, that seem, to me that seems to be the next logical area for that in Possibly um, in the Burke County, McDowell County area with Silver Fork, South Creek, um, Lake James Cellars, and uh, that area. There's some other vineyards there as well. Um, that I think would be another potential area mm-hmm. for an ABA, potentially Catawba Valley. And I, I don't know if that would be an accurate name, but yeah. uh, that might be it um, in North Carolina. I think what about- it would probably be have most of the land area and mm-hmm. kind of. That western two-thirds of the state. Yeah, most of the vineyard sites are already covered by that. So, yeah. But what were you thinking? Like further east, if there's any. Like, what about a Muscadine ABA area? Mm-hmm. Now, that would be really yeah, is interesting. Is that an option? I don't know. That's, we were debating that. <laughs> something we need to research. Yeah. Certainly eastern North Carolina. I mean, it's grown. It's a grape that's grown. Absolutely. It's not like it's, you know. Yeah. Right. I mean, the Sandhills definitely have clearly a geographic, you mm-hmm. know, differentiation between the rest of it. So Yeah. Yeah. And the coastal Food for thought. Well. <laughs> So our TTB listeners out there, go ahead and uh, consider a muscadine ABA. That would be awesome. And then we have the different growing in the northeast part of North Carolina as well, in Curry Tucks so yeah. Sanctuary. So who knows? Yeah. There's and definitely for, potential for more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for a reference point, California has hundreds. So yeah. absolutely. I mean, it's not like we're has. limited to our yeah. six. Yeah. AVAs within AVAs within AVAs. Right. Across AVAs. <laughs> yeah. And I think we're one of the few states that have... ABAs shared with other states, as mm. we kind of talked about before. So we've got an ABA that's shared with two other states, with Appalachian High Country, Upper Hiawassee with Georgia, um, which is kind of unique. Um, yeah, they don't in, often cross state lines. You have that in Oregon but, and Washington. Really, mm-hmm. that's about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So We had one more question for you guys. Okay. Because uh, we really like to do trivia facts. Um, but when do you think, well, when was the first ABA established? In North Carolina? Yeah. Or, okay, I was going to say. Nation, nationwide. When do you think it I was? I don't know when it was, but it was in Missouri. Okay, you got that part. Half credit. Half credit. <laughs> in, the, in the... 1918? Like early 80s? 1980. 1980. Nice. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Um, Excellent. And what's the name of that one? Well, thank you for asking, Joe. That's the Augusta AVA in Missouri, in the Ozark Mountains. Very interesting. But I'm guessing they grow a lot of Norton in that area. Mm. given that's the that's the claim to fame for Missouri wine. Very cool. So we've learned about the AVAs we have in the state, the importance of the AVAs. Any parting advice or words of wisdom regarding AVA? Just to go look for one and drink it and see if you can get in on the hype with it. Pick up the terroir. Well, perfect. Jesse and Jessica, we definitely appreciate the AVA wisdom. And we will be looking for that AVA marking on the next bottle. You can find out more information about the Wine Mouths by going to their website, winemouths.com, or on Facebook and Instagram, at Wine Mouths. That's W-I-N-E-M-O-U-T-H-S. And now, back to the show. So we're back with Pat and Clyde. So Pat, let's talk a little bit more about the wines that you make from those organic grapes. So what, what wines would people expect when they come to visit the tasting room? Um, we have a, a range of wines from dry whites and reds through semi-sweet to sweet. Um, and um, we, I'm fond of saying that we make wines that we like and that way if nobody mm-hmm. else does, it's really okay because we can drink them. That's um, <laughs> important. It won't all so, go I mean, <laughs> I mentioned earlier, we, we try to find grapes that we think really do make a nice wine. And um, we have a philosophy in our winemaking that we think you should find the fruit in every glass of wine. Whatever the fruit is, you should find the fruit. So we don't just add a lot of sugar to make a sweet wine. We really do a lot of taste trials to make sure that the fruit is very present. Um, and, you know, it's, there are um, a number of wines. I grew up in northern Wisconsin, a lot of Scandinavians. Uh, they drink a mulled wine called Glug, or Glog. Um, and 
So a few years ago, we, we tried doing that. Um, and that's become very popular. Uh, we make that with uh, almonds and raisins and cardamom and cinnamon and cloves and orange peel. Um, we have done, we do an apple wine. We have organic apple trees. Um, we don't have enough. So we go up to Brushy Mountain and buy tons of apples. We make an apple wine. And then we add cinnamon cloves and then for texture, almonds and raisins. And we think it smells and tastes like apple pie. Um, just recently, um, we have an assistant winemaker, Louis Demers, and he decided that he wanted to try making some sangria. So we have some noble wine, I said, go for it, try it, right? So he made, uh, and we've just bottled what we call native sangria with oranges and lemons and limes and uh, whatnot. And so, so we have some fun wines that I, I think of as fun wines at that end. Uh, and then we have dry wines. You know, we do a Chambers and Cynthiana blend that is a dry red with tannins, with a little bit of oak in it. Um, Chamberson, which is one of, as a, as a winemaker and as a consumer, is one of my favorite grapes. I think the Chamberson grape, you can grow it organically, even in our climate, and it makes a really nice wine. It's smooth, it's got, you know, a lot of flavor. Um, so, you know, Likewise with, with Tremonette. Tremonette is one of those hybrids that you can, we do an off-dry German-style Tremonette that is just wonderful. It's dry, but it's very fruit-forward. Um, so, you know, you, you can do, I think the fun part of making wine is to take the grape and to kind of experiment with, if you try, you know, does it taste better with a little bit of oak or without? Does it taste better, you know, let it sit a little right. bit longer so it develops more tannins or bottle it young? Um, so, you know, that, that's, to me, that's just the fun part of winemaking, truthfully. We've talked a lot about your organic grapes, but we haven't really touched on the organic blueberries. Oh, so we'll yeah. we'll talk about those for a minute. Okay, so we have an acre and a half of organic blueberries. Um, and blueberries grow unbelievably well in the Atkin Valley. They do, they grow beautifully. It's one of my favorite fruits. I love mowing when they're getting ripe because I just eat my way all over the place. Um, an acre and a half is a lot of blueberries. We do a blueberry wine. Um, it is more of a dessert wine. Uh, blueberries are very acidic and they stop fermenting and they still have residual sugar. We didn't know that first year we made them um, because the acid and the sugar come into balance and it basically stops the fermentation. Hmm. Um, we also do a blend, a blend of Chamberson and blueberry and for some reason that grape wine and blueberry wine are very complementary to each other. They, they kind of fill in each other's gaps, if you will. Um, so yes, we do a lot of blueberries. So now, what is your favorite wine? Either that you made currently on your list or just of all time? Um, boy, that's a tough question. Um, truthfully, it has a lot to do with what I'm eating, mm -hmm. that's to very be fair. honest. Um, <laughs> I love Traminette, uh, dry Traminette. Um, I love Chamberson. Um, and honestly, the strange thing to me is I really like the native sangria that we just did. I was surprised. It's, it's, it's kind of a, it just drinks smooth and it's got a little citrus in it, which I like. Yeah, it definitely makes a citrus. And uh, yeah, I, I, that one kind of surprised me. I lean more till dry wines. We both do. We lean more till dry wines. And as a result, our wines tend to lean a little more dry in general. Um, and uh, the, the other wines are what I refer to as craft wines. You know, they're just, let's try this and see how it tastes, you know, so. Oh, for sure. I mean, like you said, your, lines, your wines do definitely lean more toward the dry side. Yeah. You have a few sweets, but they're not really over the top sweet. They're okay. all really nicely balanced. Thank you. So. 
So what's your annual case production? Um, we do somewhere around between 1,000 and 1,500 cases a year, which I think is pretty average for small farm. I refer to it as a small farm winery, which is what we are. So let's talk a little bit about in the vineyard, the trellising. So you've okay. got some interesting trellising out there with the <laughs> two multiple cordons and yeah. that sort of thing. Um, yeah, well, we've, we've actually just finished converting the vineyard. When we first planted, I mentioned earlier that we really didn't know what we were doing very well. Uh, we were doing a lot of reading and guesswork. Um, and we had read on the Scott Henry trellis system, which is basically two sets of cordons on wires that are 6 to 12 inches apart. Um, the theory on Scott Henry is that all grapevine varieties have a preference to grow up or a preference to grow down. Mm. The theory on Scott Henry was that if you forced the vines to grow both ways, you would slow <laughs> down its vegetation. And of course, we knew, especially in the muscadines, but we knew that they were very vegetative. And so it was one of those things where we thought, you know, maybe that might help us. So we planted the entire vineyard on Scott Henry. Hybrids, muscadines, you name it. Um, about four years ago, um, we decided to take the hybrids off the, the um, Scott Henry because we just didn't feel like they were vegetative enough, mm. if you will. And we basically use a modified high wire for them. Um, the muscadines we kept on Scott Henry because, again, that's the ones that we thought would have the biggest issue with being too vegetative. Um, and they are. They're very vegetative. Uh, and there are you know, times when you can barely walk through the 10-foot row because the vines are growing <laughs> across to the middle. And uh, so about three years ago, we decided to experiment. We took one row of the Doreen and cut the bottom cordons off. So all we had was basically a VSP system on that row, just the top cordons. Um, well, it clearly cut down on the amount of labor. Pruning, harvesting, you name it. The, the amount of labor was cut drastically. The most interesting thing was that fall when we harvested, we harvested that row into separate buckets and started tasting the grapes from that row and the grapes from the neighboring rows. And they tasted better. Hmm. They were sweeter. All of the characteristics that you want from a wine grape sure. were in that row. And so the following year we made a decision and we cut the bottom cordons off the entire vineyard, put everything basically on VSP or a modified high wire. Um, and not only have we cut the labor in half in the vineyard, but the grapes are coming in much more flavorful. I think what we inadvertently were doing you know, you looked at it with two sets of cordons, you think you're going to get twice as many grapes, and you do. The problem was, if, it's, if the grapes aren't as good, and the labor's twice as much, and we were always leaving fruit on the vine. So what was happening that we didn't really appreciate was, was we were basically overcropping mm, those right. vines. We were forcing those vines to have twice as much fruit as they could do a good job. You know, you start thinking like nature, so you, I talk like I'm a vine. But, <laughs> you know, they, they were trying to, you know, I think of a grape as a baby, right? They were trying to keep all the babies alive and healthy. And as a result, none of the babies got quite as much as they would have gotten had there been half as many. So, um, yeah, I, we've, we've now come back. Um, I think we may have been the only vineyard in the state that had Scott Henry as a trellis system. I have not talked to a single vineyard that's tried it. Um, and, and now we understand why. <laughs>
you got to live and learn. Yeah, you got <laughs> so it. So that's important. Speaking of learning, so I mean, that's definitely one thing that you've kind of started off with and then adjusted your approach on it. So what else have you learned in all the years of doing business? Oh, we've learned a lot. Um, the you know the whole the whole farming thing we we weren't farmers neither one of us grew up farming uh, we are so fortunate to have Surrey community college here mm-hmm. uh, you know as Clyde mentioned he has a PhD I have a master's degree we went through the program at Surrey after we moved up here and it was perfect timing because we were we had planted half the vineyard we were planting the other half we were starting to train and prune and we would go to class, the viticulture class, and be doing these things in the school vineyard and come back and do them here. And so, you know, we both went through the entire program. We learned everything that we could possibly have to know to get started. And then we try to take advantage of the wine grower meetings and Eastern Winery Expo. We try to take advantage of educational opportunities. You, you never stop learning. Um, you know, winemaking is a combination, in my mind, winemaking is a combination of culinary arts and chemistry. Well, chemistry was always easy for me, and Clyde loves to cook. So it was kind of a good combination of talents. Um, and I always, you know, tell, we have, our assistant winemaker loves to cook, and it's like, you know, you got everything it takes to be a good winemaker. Um, you know, it, it, you learn a lot, um, you know, about, well, I'm not going to do that again, right? <laughs> um, our chiller went out. An example, our chiller went out. Um, now, up north, they will put the tanks outside to cold stabilize the lines. Um, and we happened to be up in New York visiting Clyde's family, and I, I observed that. And I thought, well, you know, we get some pretty cold weeks. Maybe we could do that down there, you know, where it's below freezing. So we put the tanks outside and cold stay. And it looked like, I mean, there were tartrates on the bottom. It looked, um, so we proceeded, and um, then we went ahead and, and bottled ultimately, and then we learned that they weren't cold stabilized. <laughs> so, I, you know, you learn these things the hard way. Um, but, uh, you know, that's life. Um, uh, likewise, you know, which organic amendments actually will work and which actually don't do anything. Uh, guineas, I love guineas. You know, we have chickens. We let the chickens eat the grubs and eat the weeds. Uh, um, but uh, you just, you learn by doing, and, and we've, you know, developed a good relationship with the other vineyards and wineries in the county and the area. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's... Everybody helps everybody, and it's a very special kind of situation in that regard. That's a very, very major thing in what we do, because we have, what, 40 vineyards, something like that, and that it's no contention of bashing anybody or anything like that. The whole thing is settled. We're all going to do it and do it right. And if I don't know how to do it, there's somebody there. And it's a, it's a, it's interesting that way. You know, they normally it would happen to, bang, bang, right. bang. Yeah. It's, who can it's who can that and it, It's the episode, yeah. opposite. Yeah. yeah, it's just not and that it, way here. It's great. You don't find we that hear way. that from, from yeah. most people. It's very so. special. Uh, you know, and I think part of it is, and I'm going to use Surrey County as an example because I'm just more familiar with the data here. But, you know, we have we have 14 wineries. We will have 16 in another year. Um, And we grow 45 different wine grapes in one county. Wow. 45. That's a lot. You know what? It sets us apart in a special way. My kids lived in Portland, Oregon. They went to graduate school up there and lived there for many years. And I used to love to visit them. And I loved to go to the wineries. And the Pinot Noir was amazing. But you'd go to two wineries, and then it was like, okay, we've done that. Because they all had the same wines. Now, granted, they had different winemakers, so they might taste a little different, but basically the same. 
one of the things that's fun, and, and we hear this from people who come down from Ohio and West Virginia or Florida or wherever, that makes it fun to come here is that we all have such different grapes. You know, we all make our own wines. So if you gave the same grapes to two winemakers, you're gonna get two different wines. And, you know, I always tell people, you tell me what kind of wine you like. Oh, you like Barbera? Well, they make a Barbera. Oh, you like Pinot Grigio? Well, they do a, you know, and that's fun. You know, you don't, yeah, we all, there's some grapes that there's a bunch of us that have, but by and large, we all do different. And that's very special here. And we help each other out. Mm -hmm. We compete. Logically, we know that. Intellectually, we know that. But we don't feel competitive with each other. We want to help each other. Well, Mm -hmm. the success of you is a part of the pie for the whole region. And all of that together makes yeah. Big pies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's important. That and, you know, there's something, you know, we'll, we'll, you'll be doing something and run out of something. You know, we're b- bottling and the filter clogs up. Mm. It's like, oh, crumb. And so you realize that, you know, some other winery uses the same type size filter you do. So you call them and say, you know, do you happen to have any clean filters? Because our sterile filters, we're, we don't have any left in it. We're halfway through. Oh, yeah. I'll bring it over. You know, somebody will get, you know, they need um, corks. We, mm-hmm. you know, do you have any? Yeah, we have a bag of corks that aren't logoed that we've never opened. Okay, so you know, I love it, and it's mm-hmm. it's a wonderful environment. Um, you know, we're all doing the same thing, but we're not doing the same thing. So it's like a big wine family. It mm-hmm. is exactly. It very much is, and uh, that's I I would argue one of the most rewarding things mm-hmm. about having spent. 15 years doing this is just that. Hmm. The community is something you just don't find everywhere. Mm-hmm. What's left the biggest impact besides the whole community? It sounds like that's definitely, but is there anything else? Um, I think realizing how good nature is um, and, you know, one of the hardest parts is also recognizing that a lot of what we have, as humans have done, we have to stop doing. Um, and you only begin to see that so clearly when you just let nature take its course. And then you look around you and see, wait a minute, that's not working well, you know. and. So it's it's the most positive thing is just feeling a part of nature and being a part of nature, but it's also the most negative thing because mm-hmm. you begin to see what we as human beings are doing to this planet that's not right. working as a part of nature. So it's both. If there's ever been a call to action, it's definitely that. Yeah. 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 Um, it is. So yeah. what is it you look most forward to in the future, both for Carolina Heritage here and then also North Carolina wine? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that we haven't mentioned but I think is a really positive thing, we were, we were in the first group to people to do analysis for the QAP program. Hmm. Um, you know, and I think, you know, we, we, got, we got the how to make wine down. Um, we got the how to grow grapes down. Um, and the next step is continually improving our wines. And, you know, the, the QAP program, when, when we, we used to do the panel on it, is so good for helping people, um, especially new winemakers who may not recognize a fault. They don't know what VA smells like or tastes like. They don't know what cork taint is. <laughs> to me, that's the exciting part of the future of what's going on, uh, is just the focus on quality. Mm-hmm. I'm right there with you. I think that the, the quality thing is, like you said, we've, we've understood how to grow grapes and we've been growing grapes for a while. We know how to make wine. We're doing really well. 
but the quality is really where it is. That's really going to push us to the next level. To the next mm -hmm. level. Yeah. Right. So the Quality Alliance program is key to... It, it very much that. is, and we are big supporters. We're not as active in the QAP program as we were in terms of being panelists, and that's strictly a matter of time. Mm -hmm. uh, we just are, we are trying to have too many balls in the air. Only well, fit so many weeks into one day, right? Yeah, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. She does pretty well. Yes, yes. <laughs> we, we, we see that. Yeah. <laughs> so we're kind of winding down on the question. So what is it that you want customers to know when they come to visit Carolina Heritage? Um, that I guess what the message that I would like people to leave with uh, is that, you know, this this journey that we've been on, Clyde and myself, is, was really, um, it was an adventure meant to help us grow, and, and it's so much accomplished that. We talked about being a part of nature, mm -hmm. but that it's possible to do things in a sustainable way you know we talk organic but really what we're focused on is sustainable and that includes all aspects uh, that includes not using petrochemicals but it also includes you know what is your business model what is your how do you treat your customers how do you treat your employees mm -hmm. um, all of those things are important factors in being sustainable and um, you know, I, I hope they leave feeling good about their experience. Uh, I hope they leave feeling positive about we can do things without petrochemicals. Uh, and that they think about that in terms of when they get home and they're planting their vegetable gardens. And I mean, you know, the little things, those little things will add up on this planet. And. Um, so I, you know, I don't, I don't like to preach to people about, about that, but I'm hoping that they leave with that kind of that thought. Definitely a good takeaway. Anything we can do to make it better for everyone, mm -hmm. yes. for sure. Yeah. yeah. Quality, not quantity. Quantity, yeah, you got it. It's great yeah. words. Yeah. Well, Pat and Clyde, thank you so much for having us here at Carolina Heritage Vineyard and Winery. We really appreciated the time and the conversation. Thank you. So we're looking thank forward to some more. Thank you, gentlemen. It was a thank pleasure. You. That's it for this episode of Cork Talk. Thanks again to Pat and Clyde. Growing and producing organic wine is truly a passion, and they're certainly embracing it with a thirst for knowledge. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and a review. It helps others find Cork Talk and lets us know how we can improve. Did you know we have a Patreon page? You'll get patron-only content, early access to each show, and more when you sign up. You can find out more information at patreon.com slash corktalk. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NC Wine Guys. Until next time... And remember, a cork only talks when it's out of the bottle. Cheers! Cork Talk is a free run LLC production.